Amen. Open your, look at me within your Bibles to the, uh, at the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Uh, I, do, I have notes written down so that I, I stay, uh, try to focus as possible. Because I get, I'm going to get, uh, well, I just feel like this is a, a part of the, my prayer path, for, I think, for this year. I think I'm going to spend more time thinking about the principles here. Jesus is teaching. This is Matthew's uh, how he has organized this, he has organized uh, his gospel into five different s- teaching sections. And this is the first of those sections that we call, uh, in our contemporary uh, layout of Scripture, we call this the Sermon on the Mount. That doesn't necessarily mean that, that Jesus actually sat down on a hill and said all these things at once, necessarily. He very well may have, but Matthew has organized it in this way uh, for, his, for his audience. And in this teaching, in this collection of of the things Jesus is teaching about, chapter 6, Jesus begins teaching about prayer. And uh, here's what he says. Uh, um, He he begins actually early, way up at verse 5, talking about when his disciples pray. And the first thing he does, not unlike Jesus, particularly in the book of Matthew, this is not a hermeneutic lesson, but... Particularly in the book of Matthew, Matthew will give, Jesus gives uh, the, um, well, how can I say this and sound professional? Here's how it's been done wrong. Here's how it should be done. That's a, a, a rhythm in Matthew. Uh, and uh, so here's what he says. When you pray, verse 5, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corners So that, it's not that standing and praying is wrong, right? Right? Okay. Uh, It's not that that's wrong, but here's the so that. So that they may be seen by men. There's the the wrong part. Praying so that others will applaud you. Praying uh, for the wrong audience. Jesus is going to correct uh, our audience agenda. He's He's going to modify. He's going to make sure we're focused uh, on the right uh, uh, audience when we pray. So then he says, verse 6, But you, when you pray, go into your inner room and close the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Now let's pause again right there. Why, why is Jesus saying that? Is he saying that we should never have a public prayer meeting? No one ever should ever see you pray. Absolutely not. He is correcting the idea that prayer was only something that you did if you wanted to be noticed or approved of or applauded by others. So he pokes his audience and says, why don't you pray and go, go by yourself and pray? See, if you're by yourself, you pray, then he's, he's challenging them to sincerity and to real focus. Uh, and when it would have been something relatively foreign to them. Who would have prayed by themselves? If you pray by yourself, no one can think you're terrific. And so Jesus, and thus Jesus' point, so then he says, go in your room, pray, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father sees what is done and will reward you. So again, here the, the principle is here, if you're looking, if you're hoping to find reward, don't seek reward from doing what you do in the eyes of others for their applause, but know that if, you'll, if what you do in secret, your father will heaven, in heaven will reward you, and even openly. Okay. Then verse 7, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. What did he mean by that? Well, 
he, he literally meant that the, the pagan nations believed, if the Pharisees and the hypocrites believed that, that they had relegated prayer to, that just for the appearance of spirituality for others, for others' applause, he takes it to another extreme, and he says, nor should you treat prayer like the Gentiles or the pagans do, who believe that they have to unga bunga, that they have to chant and chant and chant and chant and chant, and if they use the right words, they will get the right results. Don't just engage yourself in meaningless repetition, hoping that if you, if you say the right words and say them often enough that some, some idol will hear you and respond. But on the contrary, he said, for they suppose that they will be heard for because of their many words. Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. So now he's, he presses us further. So do not, uh, now he, then verse nine is the, is, the, is the, now do it this way. Pray then in this way. So Jesus is going to give us some, uh, some principles. He's going to, this is not as some might think that you, this, is some, this, and, this is something that you should just repeat over and over again. This is not a formula. This is a focus. This is, Jesus, I want us, if you can just lean into this for a moment and think, this is the Son of God explaining to us what prayer is and why we pray and what prayer does. This is the ultimate prayer conference, right? Jesus is about to teach on prayer. (laughs) Let's lean in. We'll see how, what prayer does, what, how, how it works, what happens, how it, that, that it, prayer affects heaven and earth and us at the same time. Here it is. Pray then in this way. And I'll just, uh, let me read it, and then we'll come back and look at it again. Uh, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Everybody said amen. Real quick, let's just uh, let's let these words jump out on us. Pray in this manner. Pray like this. Uh, I think Jesus does present an order of thought here, but I don't think he does so that so that we will just repeat the order. Although I do think that what he says shows some priority and some relationship about things we should pray. So he begins with this, our Father in heaven. Everybody say it with me, please. Our Father who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. Now, that, that's, that's our, our, the Father of the, in the heavenlies. This is not, number one, a, a requirement that we have some sort of Trinitarian formula in prayer. I understand people teach that, and it, they, that, but the problem is it begins to be restrictive and, it's, and it subjugates the persons of the Trinity into the gold and silver and bronze medals. You, it's not, oh, you should only pray to the Father in the name of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. No, no, don't do that. There's one God. You can just pray. You can just pray. The, the point is Jesus is emphasizing relationship. That he is not some, this is not a Trinitarian gold, silver, and bronze type of a thing, nor is this some sort of a, we certainly aren't praying to saints, amen, okay? And nor are we trying to just reach out to and, and contact some strange, foreign, distant deity, but rather we are talking to our heavenly Father. Everybody say, our Father. 
meaning he is our protector, our provider, our caregiver, and our source. He is more interested in us than we are in us in terms of protecting us and providing for us and caring for us. He's thinking about things we're not thinking about yet. He cares about us. What's one of the first things that we should see in this? When you pray, start your prayer off knowing that the person you're praying to cares about you. That, that really changes how we approach prayer. That I'm not, I don't come to prayer and, you know, check my breath and make sure my, you know, I don't have to, you know what I'm saying? I, I, he cares about me. I'm deeply aware of this tonight as my, as my wife is in Dallas and, the, and the, the kids are at home. I'm thinking all day, I'm thinking I got to do this for lunch and I need to do this for dinner. And when they're still thinking about what video game to play, I'm thinking about lunch the next day. I'm their dad. I care about them. So Jesus wants us to know that when you pray, you're praying to a father. Not to some deity, not to some idol, not to some, not to some foreign dictator, but to your father. Amen. Let that inspire us as we pray. Let that give us hope and confidence. I probably could talk a long time about that part. But then in the heavenlies, whoo, everybody say in the heavenlies. That, that, that does not mean that he, is a, that he is somewhere far away in the distance. Nor should we read it this way. And here's, I think, might be fun for us tonight to consider. That when you talk about heaven, friends, all, we realize that heaven is a place that people uh, will go to on the other side in eternity. After this life, there is another life. There is life abundant and beyond this one. And that's our, one of our deepest and greatest hopes, that this life is not all there is. Otherwise, that makes us sad you sees. Right? You see how we did that, right? Okay, that's from Grandma Glow. Grandma Glow taught me that as a wee one. Okay? But heaven is not so much an, es- in a, a, an eschatological location. As, as, it's not a someday place. It's a present reality. Heaven is a present reality. It exists right now. Heaven is now. Heaven exists now. It's present now. And all that all Jesus is saying is, uh, is that you, you, not to sound like a Doctor Who or whatever, but there is this spiritual dimension that is present right now. And our Heavenly Father is, meaning He is fully present in that spiritual dimension now. And that's, and that's so important that we understand he- that heaven is not simply as, a, as a, an eschatological location, but as a present reality. Because if we, if we understand it as a present reality, then that changes even how we'll read some of Pauline, Paul's epistles. When Paul says that he has things and promises and power and blessings stored up for us in heaven, typically people read that like, oh, wonderful, I, he has all that waiting for me after I die. Or he has it stored up right now. He literally has a warehouse right now with stuff in it. So we're praying to a heavenly father who is present with us, who fills a spiritual dimension that is, that is, a, that is more real than this one, that is more real than the world around us. See law. Then he says this, hallowed be your name. Let your name be revered. Let your name be delighted in. 
Let your name be counted and treated as holy and wonderful. Right away, he, he helps us to understand what that, that prayer begins with the, the wondrous uh, awe and delight in just who God is. And that it's not so that it's not because God has a fragile ego that he needs us to protect his name, but that our only real delight, our hope, our safety, our sense of security and mission, our purpose for having breath is to behold him. Hallowed be your name. Lord, we honor you. We remember that from you and to you and unto you are all things. You are God and I am not. I don't get a vote. I don't get to express my opinion on eternal matters. I get to be thankful for who you are. It's this reverence with prayer. That doesn't make us run away. It makes us draw near, but we draw near with such a reverence that remember who you're talking to and, when, and, and, and have delight in his hallowed, holy, venerated, let your name be. Prayer is, as all of life is, a Godward thing. Amen. Then he says this. This is the first uh, imperative part of the prayer. Your kingdom come. Would you all say that with me? Your kingdom come. I know many of our Bibles like to, because our translators, they, they, feel, they feel a little awkward um, putting the imperative in there. They say, let your kingdom come. May your kingdom come. Like we're asking a favor. But this is Jesus' prayer conference, not ours. So let us learn from how, what Jesus told us to pray. He actually told us to stare up at our Heavenly Father and make a declaration. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. We're certainly not telling God what to do, but he, he, he has ordained that we partner with him in declaring what, his, what he wants. You know, do you know that nothing happened in Jesus' ministry until he said the kingdom of God is here? Until he declared it present, there was no activity of that kingdom. Now, the reason why he said it was present, I'll tell you in a minute, we, we, it has to do with the coming of the Holy Spirit. He also never said the kingdom of God is here until the Spirit descended, descended upon him in baptism. Frank Mackey, a Pentecostal scholar, actually does a great job of simply explaining that the kingdom itself is the Spirit. It's the prevailing influence of the Holy Spirit. There, if you think, there is not another force out there. It's not like there's God and then some other immaterial force out there. No, it's just God. So if there's a, domi a dominion, a basalia, an active rule of God, that is, the, that is the exercise of His Spirit. So when we talk about, I'm, you know, we want the kingdom of God to be present, we're talking about the prevailing influence of the Holy Spirit Himself. That's the kingdom. So He says, so when we, when we understand that theologically, and then we come back and say, your kingdom come, we really are saying, come Holy Spirit. But not just come Holy Spirit so that we can feel you, but come Holy Spirit and have dominion. We are calling for the manifest dominion of God. Your kingdom come. 
Do not mistake what we're, what Jesus, this is Jesus' prayer conference. He's not asking for us to pray just for warm fuzzies or happy thoughts. He is saying, you pray, you declare for the manifest dominion of God. Wow. The presence and prevailing influence of the Holy Spirit. It's a declaration. Your kingdom come. The next imperative, which has its own verb, its own act, its own object, its own noun. Your will be done. Your will be done. Again, it is it, it, part of our history has encouraged us or invited us to read that as um, uh, laissez-faire or you know, like, hey, you know, whatever, you know, kind of this idea of us backing up and, and, uh, and, uh, and saying, this is what we'd like to happen, but hey, you know, whatever you want, Lord. Of course, we're submitted to his will, but this is not that kind of a statement. Once again, this is an imperative. We are declaring that, that and these are partner imperatives, we are declaring, we are calling for the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit so that the kingdom of God will be manifest in His dominion in such a way that His will, His preference prevails. I'm looking for a sea law. I'm looking for a deep awakening in this room tonight that Jesus in His prayer conference taught us to pray and declare and expect that the will of God prevails. His preference Thalo means preference, what you delight, your preference. You know, his, and that's what Jesus said to the leper when the leper said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He said, it would be my preference. I prefer you not, not uh, under oppression. I prefer you not in decay. I prefer you to be well. We are in prayer. Our job is to prayerfully declare and call upon the preference of God to prevail on the earth. And when you take a look around, if it doesn't look like that's God's preference, then and that's a target for our prayer. Divorce, not his preference. Decay, not his preference. Disease, not his preference. Addiction, not his preference. Rebellion, not his preference. Death, all this stuff, not his preference. Therefore, we pray, your will be done. Change what's happening and make it conform with your will. But he's looking for his authorized stewards to say something about it. He has a preference, and how that preference prevails depends on our praying. And then he says this, on earth, your Bible say, on earth as it is in heaven. This is the qualifier, or this is the sum of both of the above imperatives. Your, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Now we know, I've said it before, the rhythm of the original Greek there is just a little bit different. It's just harder to understand in English. But in, in the Greek, it should be read, as in heaven, so on earth. So if you read it this way, your kingdom come, your will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. This gives us the frame of reference. This is our template. What, is our fr- what, what are we to imagine when we, when we are calling for his will, 
when we are declaring his kingdom to have, to have in, a manifest dominion his, and influence, when we are saying, Lord, let your will, your preferences prevail, our, the, the, our frame of reference, what that's supposed to look like is, Lord, it's supposed to, heaven is supposed to have influence here. It, it is supposed to, uh, it, it, how are things supposed to be? They're supposed to be like heaven. What are we trying to accomplish? We're trying to accomplish making things more like heaven. What are we striving for? Heaven. And we are not settling for less than heaven. But that's again why it's important that we not relegate heaven to simply an eschatological timeline, but a present reality. Things are going to be different when Christ returns and all of that and the Perusia. Things are going to be radically different then. But heaven will still be heaven. But our experience, the life, life the reality will shift. But right now, heaven is still a present reality, and that, and that present reality wants to have manifest dominion and influence here in our lives. And Jesus wants us to pray. He's actually, can you imagine? He's telling us, don't just, don't, let me say, don't just pray for little things. Don't just pray for small religious-y things. You are to pray in such a way that heaven prevails on earth. Now. Now. And this is Jesus talking. Before anybody thinks, well, that's kind of that's out there. That's kind of aggressive. Boy, that, that sounds like a little much. Maybe whoever, whoever said that might be kind of reaching a bit. what we usually do when someone sounds like they're really aggressive, like they have a big, big, big idea. Well, we've got to be careful. We need some wisdom here. This is Jesus's prayer conference. And he says, you declare your, that he, you declare the kingdom to come, the will of God to be done, that it, in such a way that it continually begins to look more and more like heaven. As in heaven, so on earth. The, that's the, that is the direction of influence. What, it, what is a real and accomplished and desired and stated and legal in heaven is to be presented, is to be implemented on the earth. Hallelujah. Then he says, give us this day our daily bread. Wonderful. Wonderful. Wonderful that prayer isn't just, a, isn't just about wrestling with the cosmos. Right? I mean, we have cosmos wrestling phrases in here, your kingdom come. You know, we're reaching out and shit bending the cosmos. And in the very next breath in prayer, we're saying, also, Lord, we look to you to be our source and our supply for our daily needs. And there is no distinction. There is no separation in this. It's just one prayer, one thought, because he's our father. There's not necessarily a priority even the same God who wants His, his, his kingdom to, to reign upon the earth and for life on earth to be transformed under His glory and His dominion is the same Heavenly Father that is interested in making sure that your daily bread is met. Wonderful. You are our source. We keep looking to you as such. Daily, Lord, we look to you to, to be our source and supply. Give us today our daily bread. Our daily bread, daily bread doesn't come from, from, uh, from people or from organizations or governments or structures. We look to you to be our source, Lord. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here's a, this is a, a, a balanced statement. These, these things these happen at the same time. <laughs> 
He's said, Lord, forgive us as we forgive. Forgive us as we forgive. It keeps us free on both ends. There's no, I have no guilt or shame between me and God, and I have no resentment or, uh, or, 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 or uh, unforgiveness toward others. I live in the, in the freedom of grace. And both of them are important. Lord, forgive me. Just keep me forgiven and cleansed. And Lord, I just release and forgive. I release my right to get. Lord, thank you for releasing your, your right to get even with me. And I release my right to get even with others. I re, and, and, and truthfully, friends, when, we, when you forgive, you are actually just. Rele- I think that even God's justice, when he says vengeance is mine, is for me to repay. I think that there's. Uh, I know we're live here, but. I think that as long as I don't forgive, forgive me, Dan, but if I don't forgive Dan, I think that it does something about God's ability, his, his ability, according to his, how he has ordained things, God can't deal with Dan until I forgive Dan because I've, I've kept it in my jurisdiction. I mean, he said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Okay, what that means is I, need, I release Dan. Dan, I, I release my right to get even with you, and I release you, and, and you know, let, let, the, let the judge of all the earth do right. Then God, in his justice, he can deal with things as he wishes. But I think that he has set up certain jurisdictions. I can. <laughs> I think... That God has set up certain, I think he's a God of jurisdiction. I think jurisdiction is his idea. That's the reason why when he first sent out the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, he said, only go to the lost sheep of Israel. Because he hadn't gone to the cross yet. He hadn't paid for the whole planet yet. So the jurisdiction of his kingdom was extended to Israel. But as soon as he died on the cross, rose from the dead, he, he changed the, then he changed that commission and he said, now, now go everywhere because all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. The, I have now I, my jurisdiction. I've got a new badge. Not that you should ever see the movie Tombstone, all of it, but there's a part where he says, and he shows his marshal badge to the bad guy, meaning I have jurisdiction everywhere now. And then he says, you tell him I'm coming and hell's coming with me. But you tell him, Jesus said, you tell him you're coming and heaven's coming with you. Okay? But the jurisdiction, God, he's a God of jurisdiction, and, and I'm suggesting that it appears to me that, because the Bible says, you know, don't, don't take revenge, don't seek after revenge, but, let, but he says, but let the Lord do it. He says it's his, it's his to avenge, his to repay, it's, and really he's the only one that has that kind of a justice system. Now, I don't mean the justice that we are required to, uh, to do in our, in, our, in our civil society, but in terms of our relationships and offense between you and me, my job, as long as I hold on to my unforgiveness, I believe that I, have, that I have excluded God. I have said, I have kept this offense in my own jurisdiction. But when I forgive, I say, I release my, my right to get even with you, then, then I have released that and into God's jurisdiction. And now he can settle it. And he will in his own way. It's not up to me. I'm not going to, he doesn't, I haven't delegated it to him to go back and check on him later. Right? I have surrendered to him. Lord, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get even. I'm not going to do something. I'm sorry, Dan, you're right in front of me. I'm not going to find a way to hurt Dan back. I'm going to forgive him. I'm going to totally release. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to, if he's been a big meanie, that doesn't mean we're going to have coffee every week, but I'm certainly not going to try to get revenge. I'm going to release that into God's jurisdiction. 
But as long as I hold on to it, I believe somehow I have inhibited the justice of God, the goodness of God to intervene. Selah. We must live with a clean ledger. Forgive me, I forgive. Forgive me as I forgive. Nothing, no, nothing, in, the, nothing in the red anywhere. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I do not believe that Jesus has gone back in now into talking about sin. I believe he's already talked about it. Forgive us as we forgive. He's already dealt with the sin issue. I don't believe he's saying, Lord, don't, don't tempt us to sin here. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's how it should be read or understood because of the passage. Because he's saying, don't do this, but instead do this. Don't lead us into temptation, but instead deliver us from evil. He's not saying, Lord, don't tease us. Rather, he's saying, Lord, do lead us away from temptation, away from those things that, will, that could invite harm or hardship or, or unnecessary, you know, Lord, keep us away from you know, we're the red lights, the district. Lord, get, lead us away. Lead us. That's why David said, lead, you know, you lead me in paths of righteousness. And then he says, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. And, it's, and because of the, the uniqueness of that word there in the Greek, it is equitably translated, deliver us from the evil one. Evil is not a mystical, mysterious force. There's somebody behind it. Church, there's somebody behind it. We'll t- we're going to look at this on Sunday morning again because the book of Revelation is the most specific about the fact that the church has an enemy on this planet. And it was very, it's, it's, it's cool or contemporary different times in church history to kind of ignore the devil and to pretend he doesn't exist. Some people believe that as soon as Jesus rose from the dead, all the devils lost everything and they've all disappeared. They, they teach that. Of course, they, then they don't, I don't know what they do with the rest of the Bible, but they just think, don't worry about it anymore. Nothing's ever wrong anymore ever um except for when you listen to jesus <laughs> he says well you got synagogue of satan there and the devil wants to do this to you but we'll talk about that on sunday deliver us from the evil one friends there is an activity of the of evil and the evil one that is real and his activity in our at, in, at toward the church or toward believers that does not indicate the displeasure of god what it does mean is that we should, we must, and we can seek for heaven's protective action in our life. Part of our prayer is, Lord, deliver us. There, we know that there's somebody who's after us, but we belong to you. We have the right to ask our Father in heaven to protect us from the, from the onslaught, from the assignment, from the, from the malice of the devil. That's good news, not bad news. We, we remain in that kind of a struggle, but yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We pray because all of this is his. He is God, very God. His is the kingdom. His is the power. His is the glory forever. Jesus concludes this remark by bringing us back to this wonderful awe and awareness and reverence of who God is and delight in him and praise for, toward him and what it does to our hearts uh, as even as we're concluding our, our, our thoughts and our, our intercessions and our declarations, we come back to this, to, to, we don't, we don't, it doesn't end the story, our, our prayers don't end in this ellipsis of unknown, right? 
well, Lord, you know, but rather our prayers end with the declaration of what we absolutely know, right? Yours is, is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory now and forever. I, I, my prayers are punctuated with confidence and certainty and hope. Amen. Amen.